Well, one of the advantages, and some may even say disadvantages, of preaching sequentially through books of the Bible rather than jumping around uh, topically is that we eventually have to deal with the difficult passages that so often, uh, if we were jumping around, we could um, avoid them, right? We, we, are, we, we must deal with the controversy, and tonight is a perfect example of that. Um, our passage in James chapter 2, uh, verses 14 to 26, is one that puts us at odds with our Catholic friends because we interpret it very uh, differently than they do. Um, They uh, will use it as a proof text to support their belief that if anyone says they are justified by faith alone and believe that man does not in any way contribute to their salvation through their works, uh, or merit the grace of justification through uh, their own effort, they are anathema, or they are to be cursed. And that's directly from Canons 9, 12, and 14 of the Council of Trent. We, of course, believe in justification by faith alone. We believe in justification in the words of the Shorter Catechism, question and answer 33. Um, Justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein He pardons all our sins and accepts us as as righteous in His sight, only for the righteousness of Christ, imputed to us and received by faith alone. And we ask ourselves, the natural question is, well, how does faith justify us? And the answer to that question is in Larger Catechism 73. It answers this way, faith justifies us not because of those other graces which do always accompany it, or of good works that are the fruits of it, nor as if the grace of faith or any act therein were imputed to him for his justification, but only as it is an instrument by which he receives and applies Christ and his righteousness. And if we were to put that succinctly in reformational language, we believe that we are justified and saved by grace alone through faith alone. And in the words of our confession, as we accept, receive, and rest upon Christ alone by virtue of the covenant of grace. That is good news. And as we're going to see tonight, James doesn't contradict that belief. There are those that say he does, but Brothers and sisters, while Paul and James say different things, they are not in conflict with each other in regard to justification, as some assert. But to be fair, our Catholic friends aren't the only ones who differ from us in this way. There are 
many Protestants who believe that keeping the moral law is in fact grounds for our justification. There are also Protestants that believe our good works are instruments through which we are ultimately saved. They believe in what has been termed a two-stage salvation. They believe that stage one, or our initial justification, is by faith, but they also believe that the second stage, or our final justification, is by our faithfulness. But this we think about it, and as we, as we listen and then we look at it a little more closely, we, we find that this is nothing more than the same justification and salvation by faith and works that, in the words of R. Scott Clark, turn our eyes back upon ourselves and our own performance and the quality of our faith and the quality of our sanctification, which is nothing but a spiritual dead end. And of course, they and our Catholic friends use this passage tonight to, to support their position. But again, while we do believe that James and Paul say they're saying different things, they do not contradict one another. They're, they're addressing two separate but related issues. Paul, well, let me say it this way, both agree that faith is the sole instrument of salvation. Both agree that saving faith is a, is a faith that is alive and active and produces fruit. Both agree that we are not saved by our works, but we are saved for good works. The differences, their differences between one another is, is actually one of context. When you read Paul, you realize that he was addressing how Gentiles become Christians, and James was addressing how to know if someone's faith is genuine. In other words, Paul was addressing how we're justified, James is addressing how we are to live having been justified. Paul was contrasting faith and works. James is not contrasting faith and works. James is contrasting faith that is alive versus faith that's dead. He's, he's contrasting a faith that's genuine versus a faith that's false or fraudulent. And the bottom line is, Paul says that we are justified through faith without works. What he does not say is that faith exists without works. James is saying genuine faith cannot exist apart from works or without works. He is not saying that we're justified by our works. Paul says our justification and our salvation are the result of faith, not works. James says genuine faith results in works. Paul says no to pre-conversion works. James says yes to post-conversion works. 
And he does that, James does that, as we'll see, through two questions, through elaborating on those questions, by posing an objection, providing a couple of illustrations, and then giving a summation. That's his argument, okay? And that's our outline. We're going to look at the questions, an elaboration, an objection, illustrations, and a summation. And that's going to be in the normal place in the bulletin. Children, you're listening for words, faith, works, justification, sanctification, salvation, fruit, root, and Jesus. All right. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, by your Spirit, would you please grant power to the preaching of your word this evening? Grant us the ability to appraise and apprehend your truth. As always, awaken our attention and open our sorrows and convict us, challenge us, but then, of course, please refresh us and encourage us and comfort us as we see and hear Jesus and His gospel tonight. I'm weak and needy to this task to which you've called me, Um, so I ask for your support and strength and the filling of your Spirit that I might do something for you tonight, that I might be a pure channel of your grace. I pray, particularly tonight in the midst of this passage, that you would allow me to speak with clarity, fervency, and fluency and grace for the sake of Christ and His church. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's look at the questions. The questions are pretty straightforward. Um, can't really get around them. Uh, They're clear uh, as he has been, but he doesn't mince words. Uh, He uh, is not really, really changing subjects from where we've been over the last couple of weeks. He's simply building upon what he's already said, okay? So we're continuing what he's already said in chapter one and the first part of chapter two. He's addressing those who are hearing but not doing. He's addressing those Uh, who aren't bridling their tongues. We touched upon that briefly. We're going to look at that uh, more so uh, next week. He is uh, talking about those who aren't taking care of the vulnerable and the helpless among us. He's addressing those who are playing favorites based on outward appearances. Uh, And they're doing that despite their inability to judge impartially and despite God's impartial choosing, and despite the fact that it's just, it just doesn't make sense. It's illogical for anyone to be, impar- or to be partial. So the b- bottom line is he is continuing to address those who are denying their faith. And the encouragement or the exhortation is not just to deny their faith, but the encouragement is to exhibit their faith. He's wanting them to live their faith out. And in verses 14 to 26, he's presenting an argument for why this is not only uh, preferable, but it's non-negotiable. Let's look at the questions. They're these. The first is, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? And the second question right on the heels is, can that faith save him? Now, three things I want us to notice before we continue about this particular question. First, notice that he is addressing 
his brothers, his brothers and sisters. So he's addressing them, uh, those who are believers, right? He's been doing that from the beginning. He's addressing those who are justified, those who are saved. He, they've heard the word of truth. They've been changed. That word of truth has been implanted within them, and it's raised them from spiritual death to life. And, and that same word that was living and active and implanted within them, within their hearts, is something that they're holding on to. He's encouraging them to hold the faith in the Lord Jesus, the Lord of glory. Second, notice that James describes the someone uh, who's a part of this question. Um, he's, he's describing them as someone who claims to have faith. He's not addressing them as someone who who possesses faith, it's someone who claims they have faith. If someone says he has faith. And thirdly, notice the second question. That was the first question. The second question, notice that his question lets us know that the salvation or salvation that, that, that we hold to and that we, that we claim was or is by faith. Right, so, so this idea of salvation by faith would not have been new to his, his readers. Right? This is something that they would have been accustomed to. He says, can that faith save him? It, it's assumed, right? When we put all this together, we come to the conclusion that James is confronting those who are, who are professing faith in Christ, claiming to be justified, claiming to be saved, but who don't seem to understand that there is a difference between genuine faith and false faith, or um, or we'll just say, or fraudulent faith. There's a difference between merely professing faith and saying you believe or they believe, and actually possessing faith and clinging to it. He's confronting those who are double-minded, right, back from chapter 1. Those who are double-minded, those who are hearers and not doers, those who are claiming uh, to be in Christ uh, but weren't seeking to put off the old man, right? They weren't seeking to put off or take off those old, dirty, uh, mud-stained clothes of sin, and they were playing favorites and so on. And he's confronting them with the fact that there's a connection between faith and works. Genuine faith leads to action. Genuine faith produces fruit of the questions instead. And he asks the question or the questions in such a way that the answer is obvious. The answer to the first question is, there is no good. And the answer to the second question is, absolutely not. If the word of truth that is living and active and is is implanted in them, if it is implanted in them, it will, in fact, bring forth fruit. The living and active Word produces a living and active faith, and a living and active faith produces actual life and activity. It doesn't fall short along the way. Therefore, if this someone claims to have faith, but there is no evidence of that faith or of good, or there's no evidence of good works, James says they do not have, do not possess a genuine faith. Their faith is false. 
it's no faith at all. And because it's no faith at all, it does not save. And if we remember back from our study of Luke, he's only saying what Jesus himself has said. His, he heard his brother. Right? He wasn't converted prior, prior to uh, the crucifixion and resurrection, but he heard him. Right? In Matthew, Jesus says, every healthy tree bears good fruit. And in Luke, he said, as, as for the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast, and in an honest and good heart, bear fruit with patience. And if there was any question about this conclusion that he comes to, right, this is a rhetorical question that there's an obvious answer to, and if anybody is concerned about that or struggling with that, in verses 15 to 17, he elaborates. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? He uses an example. He presents a desperate situation, but it's also one that's very relevant to them. They, they would have identified with this immediately. He says, let's say a fellow Christian enters into your midst, possibly a member of the church, and they're really struggling, right? They, they're their clothes, they're, they're poorly dressed, they're inadequately dressed, their clothes are torn and tattered and maybe even falling off their bodies. They're not wearing uh, a shirt and, and jeans. They, they come in and, and really they're, they're in their underwear. And they're continually in a state of not having access to enough food to deal with their daily dietary needs. They're, they're, they're at the point of malnutrition. What good would it do that brother or sister for you to come alongside them and pat them on the shoulder and pronounce a blessing of peace on them and then pray for them that the Lord would meet their needs, but you aren't willing to be a part of the solution? What good would it do for you to bless them and then pray for them and for you not to be willing to be a part of the blessing or to be the answer to the prayer that you've prayed for them? What if you blessed them and prayed for them but didn't give any, any clothes or any food out of your abundance to take care of the needs that they have? Then he said, if you did that, if you, if you did that, you would have not only harmed them even more than they already were, you would have put yourself in a position in which your spiritual state should be questioned. That's how strong this is. Because the bottom line is, no matter how well-intentioned you might be, no matter how how important your prayers are, that kind of faith that you possess, or I'm sorry, that you profess, would be empty and useless. It'd be dead. And the point he's making couldn't be any more clear. 
a profession of faith that is not followed by or accompanied by actions is not a profession that is, um, to, be, to use a, a good Presbyterian term, it wouldn't be considered credible. To put it even more strongly, a faith that is not accompanied by good works, in the words of one commentator, is not merely outwardly inoperative, but inwardly dead. And a dead faith does not save. The works that accompany faith are what prove that faith is genuine and that faith is alive. Well, in verses 18 and 19, James is trying to stay ahead of what objections were likely to come. Okay, he's, he's like, again... He's not far off from Paul. He, he, he's going to do the same thing Paul does, right? Paul was, well, Paul's famous for bringing up the objections that he was bound to hear, and James does the same thing here. He knows that there is going to be a tinge of conviction. He knows that his hearers are going to feel that conviction, and in order to rationalize their lack of good works, they're going to attempt to keep faith and works separate. We're going to keep them as far away as we possibly can. He knows that someone is probably thinking to themselves, you know, good works just aren't my thing. As a matter of fact, um, I, I don't have the gift of mercy. I don't have the gift of compassion. I don't even have the gift of helping. I've got the gift of faith. And so he says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. And then he answers, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, we can't separate them. I know you want to separate them, but they can't be separated. They are inseparable. Faith is not exhibited apart from works. Faith can't be seen unless it's active. Good works are what makes faith visible for the eye to see. If someone can't show their good works, they can't show their faith. But it is possible for someone to make their faith evident and prove it to be genuine by exhibiting good works of obedience to the Lord. And then he throws off the gloves. In verse 19, he says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. In other words, quoting the Shema, good thing. We should all believe and quote the Shema. Right? Verbally ascending to the fact that God is one is a must. Affirming and reciting the Apostles' Creed from memory is something to be proud of. However, just know that you could say you believe in God, but even the demons have head knowledge and they're condemned. Because if what is believed doesn't move past our head into our heart and out and worked out in the day-to-day 
of life, it's useless. In the words of one commentator, it's a good thing to possess an accurate theology, but it is unsatisfactory unless that good theology possesses you. James says, don't be like the demons. Don't be like the demons who have knowledge but lack faith and therefore shudder in fear of judgment that's to come because of their lack of faith. Genuine faith is an active faith. Genuine faith results in fruits that, that are put on full display. Genuine faith is a faith that saves. Well, in verses 20 to 25, right, the gloves are off. Now he pulls out all the stops. To convince his readers of the point he's making, he turns to the Old Testament. And he looks to a couple of, uh, a couple of people to illustrate his point and to solidify his argument. And in so doing, he points out that there are not two ways of salvation. There's one way of salvation. It comes to both Jew and Gentile, and it comes by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Look at verse 20. He says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? He's apparently made himself angry just thinking about the hypothetical person that had the objection. Right? He's, been, he's been thinking about it enough that he's, he's, he's now angry and he calls whoever might be making that objection a fool. He says, you're a fool and you lack understanding, you're stubborn, you're hard-hearted, you're ignorant, and it's going to cause irreparable damage unless you do something different, unless things change. So he asks if they want to know, if they want to be shown, if they want to see and be given evidence that will prove what he says is in fact true. And to hopefully persuade them, his first illustration involves Abraham. He's a Jew, but not just any Jew. He's the father of the faith. And James says, was not Abraham the father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Right? It was a story everybody in Abraham, which is why he, he called on it. He, he, according to Genesis 15, 6, everybody knew that Abraham believed God's promise and on the basis of that faith, he was declared righteous. He was declared to be right with God and had been, because he had been imputed with the righteousness of God through faith. But in verse 21, James says, Abraham was justified by works. We look at that, what does he mean? Well, he answers the question in, in chapter 22 of Genesis. God commanded Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, and, and you probably read this in our preparation to worship. It's, in the, it's the passage that is, was there for our preparation of worship tonight in the bulletin. And Abraham didn't hesitate to answer that call. 
And he made all the preparations and he takes Isaac up to the mount. He gets everything ready as the Lord instructed. And then before he can plunge the knife into his son, God stops him. And the Lord said, now I know that you fear God. Alec Motier rightly points out, he says, we know the Lord did not need this process of validation. He knew from the start, but he is represented as needing it. He is depicted as if he came to a final decision about Abraham's faith through observation of Abraham's works, and he graciously condescends to be represented to us like this so that we can share his point of view. A true faith produced results, and in particular, the result of costly and wholly trustful obedience to the Word of God. You see, what happens, what we see taking place there is that Abraham already possessed faith. We see that in Genesis 15. Abraham obeyed God's voice in Genesis 22. So his faith that was already present took action. His willingness to sacrifice his own son was a visible demonstration of the faith that he possessed. He had been declared righteous, and his action or his activity proved it. Abraham was justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that was alone. His action proved the reality of the faith that was present. Works weren't added to his faith. He possessed a faith that worked. Listen to these words of Ligon Duncan. He said, what had happened? His faith had acted. His life reflected the reality of the faith that he had in God. His actions flowed from the realness of the faith which he had in God. In fact, Abraham's faith in God was render, verse 21 here, the Uh, In this way, he says, our father Abraham's faith in God was vindicated by his loving obedience to God when he offered up Isaac. He goes on to say, you see, it's not that Abraham was made righteous by doing a work of sacrificing Isaac. It's not that Abraham was made righteous by joining his faith to the work of offering Isaac. It's that Abraham had been declared to be righteous by God, by faith. And that he had been shown, shown to be, proven to be, demonstrated to be, vindicated as a man after God's own heart, as a friend of God, as a believer of God, by acting on that faith. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 10, or I'm sorry, John chapter 15. He said, you are my friends if you do what I command you. What is the evidence that we are friends of God? What was evidence that Abraham was a friend of God? He didn't become a friend of God because he, he had acted and had, and had obeyed. He was a friend and therefore exhibited that obedience. He was identified as a friend because of how he acted. Now, the second illustration comes from a very, very different character. Her name is Rahab. She wasn't, a Gent- uh, she wasn't a Jew, she was a Gentile, uh, and she wasn't the mother of the Gentiles, she was a prostitute. Look at verse 25. 
And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent, and sent them out by another way? It's a rhetorical question, and it's meant to be answered, yes, she was. Her story is told in Joshua 2. You're probably familiar with it as well. Uh, long story short, having uh, saved the spies that Joshua had sent in to, to spy out the land, uh, Rahab says this, following, uh, or says the following that I'm about to quote, to the spies, explaining why she had hid them from the king of Jericho. She said this, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan of Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Rahab believed God. But she not only professed to believe in God, she had faith. And we know that because of the had done. And that's why the author of Hebrews says this, by faith, Abraham, uh, I'm sorry, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. She wasn't justified by her actions. She exhibited her faith by her actions. Well, that brings us to the last point, the summation in verse 26. James closes by saying, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. It's pretty clear, right? It's the third time he said it. Verse 17, he says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Verse 20, he says, faith apart from works is useless. And now here in verse 26, he says, he says it one final time, apart, or faith apart from works is dead. Just as a, a corpse um, is but a shell of a person when their soul has departed, and we in our family say, they are not there, that person is not there, so it is with faith. Faith is but an empty corpse if works are not present. Faith is not there. Faith without works is dead. And a faith that is dead is useless and nothing but an empty profession. True, genuine faith, in the opposite, it's life-giving. And the life it gives is a life that is lived toward God. The life that it gives is a life lived by the Spirit. The life that it gives leads to fruit of repentance, it leads to fruit of righteousness, and it exhibits fruit of the Spirit. Because the old is gone, in Paul's words, and the new has come. And notice he doesn't say that future tense. He says it past tense, right? The old has gone. The new has come. 
And that leads to walking in that newness of life as the new person that we are. Listen to these ironic words from Luther. I mentioned to you that he wasn't a fan of James being in the canon. But listen to what he said. Oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. It is impossible for it not to be doing good things incessantly. It does not ask whether good works are to be done. But before the question is asked, it has already done this and is constantly doing them. Whoever does not do such works, however, is an unbeliever. Why didn't he like James? <laughs> Brothers and sisters, our salvation is not dependent upon our works. Hear me. I'll say that again. Our salvation is not dependent upon our works at all. Our justification is an act of God's free grace. Our salvation is a work of God's free grace. Christ's work merited and secured our justification and our sanctification and our glorification. It merited and secured our salvation as a whole. Our works in no way contribute to any of it, period. At any point. We are, however, called to faithfulness. It is, what we, it, it is how we are to live. We are called to mortify and put our sin to death. We're called to obey. We're called to battle our flesh. Remember James's words, we are to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. But that is only possible due to our union and communion with Christ. It would not happen apart from that. And we have been united to Him. It's only, a, it's only possible as a result of the Spirit's work. It is the Spirit who regenerates us. It's the Spirit who sanctifies us, right? This, the Spirit applies the work of Christ to our lives, and it's the Spirit who works sanctification within us. Our work is only fruit. We, we do not sanctify ourselves. The good works that we do are a result of the Spirit's work of sanctification within us. And to believe otherwise is to make less of Christ and more of ourselves, which is never a good proposition. To believe otherwise, again, in the words of Dr. Clark, it reduces Jesus to a facilitator who enables us to do our part as if there is a part, as if there is a condition left unfulfilled which necessarily turns the covenant of grace into a covenant of works. He goes on to say, justification sola fide or through faith alone is stunning indeed, but it is not stunning enough if after justification we are sentenced to salvation through faith and works. No, 
We sinners need a truly and thoroughly stunning gospel of justification and salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, period. And again, if you're wondering, were Paul and James really on the same page? Listen to what what Paul says in Ephesians 2. For grace you've been saved by faith, excuse me, through faith, and this not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But we usually stop there and we don't read verse 10. Because in verse 10 he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul and James agree. They do not need to be pitted against one another. Each of them in their own way tell us that we are not saved by our works, but we are saved for good works. Brothers and sisters, that is the gospel that we believe. That is the gospel that we preach. And may our lives be filled with good works that are fruit of that gospel as well. Let us strive but rest in Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Father, by your Spirit and by your grace, would you enable us to receive the word with faith and love and lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. Bless those who have heard your word preached, and may the seed sown in weakness be raised in power and show forth fruit of righteousness. In Christ's name, amen.